this I realized that there were some things I wouldn't be able to change about my body it kind of forced me to kind of sit with that idea and question the reasons that I want to change and when my body was developing in ways that supported movement then it was the question of if I can achieve certain things and look this way what is my reason for wanting to change my body Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you to Inemesit Graham, who is uh, one of my inspirations and one of my mentors. I started following Inemesit about a year and a half ago on social media. And like everything she posts is just inspiring, educational, and challenges the status quo. She's actually one of the big reasons that I found the courage to start my own social media page, The Passionate Physio, and then eventually um, that led to my own online business. So I'm very, very pumped for this. I will introduce Inemesit kind of officially as well. Inemesit is a personal trainer and nutrition coach specializing in women's fitness. Inemesit's goal is a decolonized approach to fitness based on body liberty and not body oppression, which I I just love all of this. So I'm really, really excited to have you on here, Inemesit. Welcome to my Mom Strength podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. (laughs) Hi, it's great to be on. Uh, very, very excited to have this conversation today. Um, why don't you share with us a little bit about your yourself and your journey and like how you got to kind of creating Mummy Fitness, which is your your business, um, and where you are today? Um, well, yeah, uh, it's kind of been a long journey. It came about by chance. So my like journey with fitness is I was active in like high school but beyond high school I wasn't physical at all and I never really saw a reason to go to the gym because I've always been naturally like skinny um so all the advertising I saw for fitness was around weight loss and that didn't really appeal to me because it wasn't something that I felt um like I needed right then I had two kids two my first two sons are two weeks less than two years apart so I had two children back to back and after my second son my body looked different and it just felt different and I felt like I had my second son at 27 and I felt like I lived in the body of like an 80 year old I just felt like so sore and things that movement that I hadn't been challenging before was challenging and then also my body presented completely differently and so like my belly had never been you know perfectly flat I don't think anyone's is but it had never been significantly distended and so when I was postpartum and I noticed this distension that was the first thing that caught my attention right and all that uh weight loss uh snapback messaging started appealing to me because I thought it looks like this yeah yeah (laughs) 
I must need to make it smaller. Yeah. And so then I started looking to ways to make my belly smaller. And at first I went on just a diet, a strict generic diet I saw online and I lost weight, but I would started off, I'm five foot seven. I started off at 120 pounds and I dropped to 90 pounds. Wow. So I was like pretty skinny, pretty emaciated, but my yeah. belly still distended. Right. And so no like, matter how much weight you lost, that was still there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And so um, then uh, that's when I kind of realized that maybe it wasn't about my body size and there was um, maybe something else going on. And so I joined a bunch of fitness groups and then I would just post pictures during doing different exercises. And remember the first time I got a big response is I posted a picture among a small group of people of myself planking and my like skin hung down below my midline and my belly like distended like a triangle. And I just yeah. said, does anyone else's belly do this when they plank? And most, some people said, yeah, mine kind of looks like this, but most people said no. And then someone mm. said, do you have a diastasis recti? And that was the first time I'd even like heard that term. So I was like, what's that? And I Googled it. And then all yeah. the images came off. Of course, all the scary stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, they had bellies that looked like mine. So I was like, oh, okay, what's this thing? So yeah. I'm like, okay, how do I fix this? And then right. that's when the scary stuff comes, started coming on. Um, yeah. And so you weren't, this was after your second child. And then you have three kids, you have three boys. And how was it? kind of over time after your third after my th I went into my third pregnancy a lot of my um, education was between my second and third pregnancy my um second and third sons are five years apart and okay. so I had this five-year period where I was just trying to figure out what was happening with my body and how to go to have a different experience in it and so going into my I went into my third pregnancy more educated and more like secure with a lot of the stuff that I was doing so that was a different experience nice um, I mean, I can resonate with a lot of that being, you know, also thin all my life, never, ever thought about weight loss until, you know, postpartum, you see this big distension and you think, okay, that's, you know, that's probably weight. Um, but it's not, you know, as you know, so mommy fitness, where do you, um, how do you, what's your business look like? Um, well, it came in cause I came into fitness through, just didn't like my body, how it looked. So that aesthetic um, idea pulled me in. And I spent probably a couple of years trying to achieve an aesthetic I thought would make me happy or would give me um, whatever physical experience that I was looking for. And in kind of working towards it, it, it uncovered a lot of other things. I realized that um, um, my experience wasn't tied, my experience in my body wasn't tied to my aesthetic because a lot of things um, I, online was being told that I couldn't do with diastasis I was realizing that I was able to do and some of the things that were said supposed to be challenging for me weren't but also um it kind of uncovered that This, I realized that there were some things I wouldn't be able to change about my body. It kind of forced me to kind of sit with that idea and question the reasons that I want to change. And when my body was developing in ways that supported movement, then it was the question of if I can achieve certain things, 
and look this way, what is my reason for wanting to change my body? Right. And that's, that's, I love when you say like your aesthetics don't define your athletics, right? Because that was the, one of the first times that I, it was presented to me that way. And to be honest, I think a lot of us see these diagnoses like diastasis recti prolapse and we assume, oh, you won't be able to do this, this, and this. And you kind of defy all of that, right? You show that what you train for is what you're able to do. Uh, and one of the things that you just mentioned is like, you know, how what if my body doesn't look different despite all this work? And like, how do you go about kind of accepting that, right? Um, how long would you say, or like, when did you first start realizing that um, no matter how much you worked out or let's say, you know, dieted, that gap or that diastasis would still be there? Was it before you had your third? Um, the gap realized... Um... I guess realizing that I, it was kind of understanding what I was trying to achieve because my postpartum, my goal was if I like have a flat belly, then I'll be confident. Mm -hmm. But before I had children, I had a flat belly and I wasn't confident and I didn't like feel good about my body. And then there was a time that I um, decided to enter a physique competition. So a lot of my friends were doing it. The social media pages were just kind of presenting like bodybuilding competitions were like the the goal that all the that's big what thing. Was, yeah. that mom bod. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> moment. And so um I started training for a competition and somebody that I considered my mentor at the time, I asked her what if she thought I could do well. And she told me that um you know, she acknowledges that I could probably get a lot of changes by exercising, but like with the way my belly looked and with the diastasis and like with the scar, she was like, you probably won't win because you won't be what they're looking for aesthetically. Mm. And that was like really hard for me to kind of swallow, but it kind of brought up this idea of, can I be happy with my body if it doesn't fit somebody's ideal of what is aesthetically pleasing? And then like when I was honest with myself, like beyond the, it wasn't the diastasis that kind of, that that I found challenging about my body that was just kind of another thing on top of um stuff and it was the limitations I found with diastasis is often a self um fulfilling prophecy and like for me um my issues with my stomach have like a lifelong I was born with an umbilical hernia which made my belly button it's like present as really large and so I got bullied by that and because of it. So when I was six, I had surgery to kind of change the way it looked and like the surgery didn't work. So I had all these issues around my belly and I kind of had to, I know it was um, identifying that the issues that I had with my body, the struggles that I had with my body extended beyond the belly and how far was I willing to go to kind of feel comfortable with my body and even asking myself what I needed to feel comfortable with my body. Cause I'm realizing that's a question people don't often ask themselves we get a lot of messaging about what we need to what all the things that we need to do to feel good and we'll follow like these it's like these pathways that lead nowhere like mm. I trained for bodybuilding competition and I got more fit and even when I look back at the pictures like I was really lean and I had visible abs but I see that today when I was in that training I didn't see that because I was always striving for something more so whatever I achieved was never enough right. I think if you have a goal of something like an ideal this perfect image that whatever you do, you're not going to ever achieve this ideal. 
Yeah, there's always something else, right? There's like, oh yeah, I'm there, but I I also want to do this or tone up here or, you know, something else. Um, you know, that, did you end up co- competing in the physique competitions? I didn't about, I stopped about four weeks when I was four weeks out. I just kind yeah. of, just, the dieting, the diet part just got so strict and there's a lot of like low carbs. I had no energy, like so, I was miserable. And yeah. throughout the process, I just realized my whole goal for kind of, um, exercise and for eating a certain way was to feel good in my body and I was actually feeling worse about my body and then it stopped being about me achieving anything but myself comparing myself to other people because it's like you look at this what aesthetic will they find pleasing and so you start looking and comparing and then you don't ever see anything that you do as right because it's never what somebody else is doing right and was this so you've lived kind of all over the world was this when you were in Canada did all this, like, did you give birth to your yeah, kids? Yeah, yeah, I lived in Canada okay. for 14 years. I had my three kids here. My oldest is 10. Okay. Nice. I, uh, I like, for some reason, didn't even know about these physique competitions and contests. I kind of lived in a bubble where, I guess because, like, that was never something that I had considered. Uh, I didn't know about it. And I was like, I always thought it was, like, an American thing. Like, oh, this doesn't happen in Canada. And now I'm learning that it, it actually does. And there are a lot of people who are into it. Um, which you know what I think that one of the things that I love about you and your work is that you really challenge that like status quo about like who what aesthetic is pleasing because who is that determined by right and we talk about um, you know diversity in fitness and diversity in in general in what we see presented in um, social media in uh, in media and TV and ads you know fitness posters and like where can you tell me a little bit more about like how you came to see your role in all of this and, um, you know, in sharing some of that diversity in fitness? When did you start realizing that fitness was not diverse at all? Um, I think I've seen a lot of messaging like within fitness and within like the postpartum kind of realm of um, looking normal. Everyone just wants to look normal. You just want to like um, – like everyone wants to look beautiful and everyone wants to feel and it's kind of it's an interesting message because I've a lot of my life I spent insecure because I never felt beautiful mm. and so I kind of question like what what is to be beautiful what is my ideal of beauty and I noticed a lot of the people that I was following even with diastasis um because within diastasis there's like talk of surgery like surgery to Reduce normalize your close the gap, flatten your belly, mummy makeover. And um, some of the people I followed were kind of going through the surgery route, like for different reasons. But a lot of the reasons that comes up is like aesthetic. And even like thinking about surgery for myself, I thought, um, is surgery going to give me an aesthetic that I'm happy with? And to be like, truthful, I'm like, it wouldn't be, I'm like, I would have to have a surgery on the hernia, which would leave me with another scar. I would have, if I had a tummy tuck, that would leave me with it. So it's just, it's trade-offs. So I'm like, I would give up one version of myself for another version of myself, but no versions of myself have ever been good enough for me. So I didn't know if that would, if that would make me feel better. And so I thought, what, what do I actually want? And that's when I started kind of having to acknowledge um, 
that the things that I aspire to are kind of out of my grasp. And something even like a role model, I thought, what are my role models? What do I see as beauty? And I started writing it down. And the people that I would put as beautiful, I would think of things like, I'm like, uh, Marilyn Monroe, she's a big one. I grew up watching her movies. I thought she was the epitome of sexy, her like soft voice, her her shape, her blonde, her light skin, her blonde hair, her blue eyes. And I would think yeah. of um, Angelina Jolie. And then I would think of um, like Jennifer Lopez. And I would yeah. kick Kim Kardashian. I would think of all these names. But then I was kind of realizing that those people are very different to what I am. And the thing that they had in common when I was honest with myself is that my perception of beauty didn't include like black people. It didn't include, there was no, because I hadn't grown up with role, black role models, that wasn't something that I saw as beauty. And all the things that I associated with, like, my white role models weren't things I generally associated with black women. I didn't really have, outside of my immediate family, I didn't really have um, black women to influence me. Right. And then I kind of was thinking about, um, just kind of through journaling, other realizations, like my um, husband is white, my kids are biracial, but part of that that like wasn't by accident and I remember a few years ago I took a trip back home and I met up with some of my high school friends and I'd had two kids at the time and they made a comment that oh it's so funny when you were like in high school you said that you would marry a white man and have caramel babies and look mm. you married a white man and had caramel babies um and I remember like saying that and as a child I used to say like of course i the only influence of a black man I had was my father right. so my excuse to myself was of course I, I can't marry a black man because they, it reminds me of my father but kind of being honest with my um looking at the things that were the themes that were ringing through in my life is that I didn't find myself beautiful and that kind of translated and I didn't find so I didn't see beauty in people that looked like me right and um and so I'm like the even not finding black men attractive, I realized because if I couldn't look at the mirror and find my reflection beautiful, when I saw myself reflected in other people, how would I see beauty in that? Right. And so my I kind of changed my approach to um, my my wellness in having uh, seeing things that represented my experience so that I would feel normal. And a big thing with the diastasis is it made me feel abnormal, like my body couldn't do the things that normal bodies could. And what has helped me feel like secure in my body and secure with the diastasis, that it's not a diagnosis that holds me back, is because I can do the things that I want to do, the things that are important to me. I can move, move in the ways that I desire so I feel normal. And I realized to normalize my appearance and my aesthetic, I would have to see more of the things that looked like me. And so I did consciously curate my social media page to start looking for and following like more black people, black authors, black writers, black poets, and, all, and just hearing voices that ref reflected my experience. But even with my movies too, intentionally like watching movies like written by black people starring a black cast and getting that experience and seeing myself represented so I could normalize myself to myself. And like, that's kind of my big kind of aha moment. And even like with body image outside of um, race, um, I think a lot of people struggle with seeing themselves because we're not used to seeing themselves. And I have to have conversations with people that are triggered by seeing a photograph of themselves. Yeah. But we're so we see other people's bodies and other representations of what beauty is so frequently, that is the image that's in our brain. And so right. and we don't often see ourselves. So our real bodies can be startling to us and we automatically reject it because it's something so unfamiliar. 
And in that, throughout my presence on social media, I use social media as accountability because when I started exercising, it was something new to me and I was worried I would be infrequent. So I thought if I posted about this and my friends like saw me doing this thing, if I suddenly stopped posting, people would be like, hey, what happened? Hey, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. And so as I did that, it I, I like took pictures of myself and I recorded myself and I would watch myself back and at first I would cringe but over time I kind of got used to seeing my body and used to seeing myself move and now I see videos of myself and it's I don't feel any way about it because it's, I'm just so used to it and I think seeing myself normalize myself seeing people that look like me normalize Mike's appearance and seeing people that understood my experience normalized my experience and when I could put myself in the realm of normal it was easy for me to accept and embrace myself that is amazing because I have I've seen that in your posts I've seen that in what you share and I see it in your stories where you share you know your abs as you do a sit-up or a pull-up or all of the badass moves that you do to be honest Um, and I think it helps to normalize it for people um, of all races, because I am I'm, I'm brown, you know, I'm Indian. And I went to school, I went to physiotherapy school 10 years ago, and everything was studied from a white lens, you know, the normative values, the normal postures, the normal uh, ranges of motion, it was all studied from such a white lens. And I live in Toronto, Ontario, which is very, very uh, multicultural. And like, there are certain um, stand, not standard postures, but their postures vary, you know, and some of that is race-based because that's like their genetic build, um, that the way they're built. And I think that when we don't not only kind of see, but we don't even study other populations, we just, you know, blanket, okay, this is your normal diet, you know, normal gap between your abs. And this is what we should normally expect. And if it's not that, then you're abnormal. And I think that what you just said about, you know, you didn't really grow up seeing a lot of black role models, um, you know, and I, that resonates a lot with me because when I moved to Canada, I was 10. And despite being in a multicultural area, I didn't really have any Indian role models. And so it was the same. Like I always knew that I would end up with a white man because that was what was plastered all over the place as the vision of attractive. And I love that now over time we see that that's well slowly and slowly (laughs) we slowly see that change kind of show up on um, tv and media but also the importance of like curating your feed right because you're so right and I think that we blindly follow people because they look fit and you know that vision of what we think looks fit is based on you know, what white people look like. And I've really made that effort as well to make sure that who I'm seeing represents, you know, a wider array of normal bodies um, to appreciate it too. And it's given me so much more appreciation in where I am with my diastasis and, you know, my body image. And I think that's one of the most inspiring things about you is that you're open and you're vulnerable to share this. And I think a lot of people, despite not being black or in your shoes, can kind of see themselves in your stories. Um, and it, I know personally, it's helped me feel seen and help me feel like, oh yeah, like this, I'm not damaged because I have this. And despite, you know, the, the physio world kind of sees everything as a diagnosis or a problem. Yeah. But 
you are not a diagnosis. You know, your body's abilities are go so far beyond that. Um, when did you start kind of weightlifting, kind of ha- heavier weights and um, barbell stuff? Did you start that before your third child? I did. What brought me into it is because with the diastasis, um, like you Google it and there's lots of people offering like programs to quote unquote fix it or close the gap or whatever um, 12 week program that they have. And so I tried like a few different programs for diastasis and I found them really difficult to get into. And I would just describe I hadn't exercised frequently and I just thought I just don't like exercise. And they were very, mm. um, a lot of them were like Pilates based or low intensity. <laughs> Yeah, I find found joy in and it was hard to be consistent. Yeah. And I remember complaining about it to a good friend of mine and she had she was a weightlifter, a bodybuilder, and she'd been in the gym since she was fourteen lifting weights and she said, like, I really like to go to the gym and lift weights. So like if you don't like this way of exercising, how about you come to the gym and lift weights with me? And so I went and she had like she knew how to train herself. She had no knowledge of diastasis or anything like that, so she couldn't give me any fear-based information to wait for mm. to show me what she did and I copied what she did and um, and then I enjoyed it and when I started lifting with her I had fun going to the gym and what kept me back wasn't the aesthetic changes is because I enjoyed how I felt and physically I felt I could notice the exp- I could see myself get stronger I could see my endurance improve I could do things that I couldn't do before and that made me happy and that made me enjoy the experience of being in the gym and so yeah it was not my physical changes it was just that just enjoying movement like people ask what's the best kind of exercise what's the best way to exercise it's like the type of exercise that you enjoy movement that brings you joy and because the movement brought me joy i was consistent in it and the thing is anything that you're consistent in you're going to progress in any movement that you do continuously you're going to get better in so I'm very good at the movements I train, but that also taught me that your body is a result of the training. And yeah. there's some things with, I my diastasis hasn't changed in size. It was six fingers when I began. It's just six fingers now. I'm three years postpartum, but my ability has changed significantly with the, with the things I train. And if I pick a brand new exercise that I'm unfamiliar with, I struggle with it. But if I right. work and practice strategies, I progress with it. So that, yeah, that kind of taught me that's where you know, I kind of started understanding that my aesthetics don't determine my athletics. And then I could see that in myself and following other people with diastasis that were open to thinking outside the box or were open to trying new things just because they felt stuck. I started seeing them, examples of other people developing their strength. And the research has started supporting that too, that your everybody's bodies, everybody's muscles respond to progressive overload. It's nobody lacks that capability. And so, yeah, that's, And it's like we might all have different starting points, right? Like postpartum. Um, But everyone, if they put in the work over time, will make progress. And I love that you, you know, you found something that you enjoyed. And I think that one of the, from what you're saying, one of the best things is having that friend who is not educated in diastasis, right? Because um, it's almost like the more knowledge you have sometimes, it can be more scary, Um, I found that as a physiotherapist, like I know everything about any injury. So when I feel like an inkling of like neck soreness, I'm like, like, what is that? Right. Versus somebody who's like not even aware of what's going on, wouldn't obsess or notice that. And I think that postpartum, it's very easy to fall into that Google, you know, I'm going to Google my injury and then like 
look at every single picture, every single exercise that they recommend, and then you try it and then it doesn't work and you feel like, okay, I failed. Um, did you end up seeing a pelvic physiotherapist or did you end up seeing a specialist um, kind of one-on-one? Um, I did um, after because what I, I mean, what my, it was helpful to train with my friend because she didn't know anything and she couldn't tell me not to do stuff not to do something and so I yeah. did but then I, d- I did have movements that I struggled with and I couldn't do and she wasn't able to help me and I'd see other people like other fitness trainers that weren't able to help me and that's when and in my mind a lot of the time if I couldn't do it it was still going back to that um, information that it must be because of the diastasis and right. so that's when I started looking for um, people to help me with my specific goals and one goal I had was to do an exercise called toe bars because I joined a CrossFit style gym and they often had it in their workouts and they often had sit-ups in their workouts and I spent pretty much three to four years avoiding sit-ups doing glute bridges instead avoiding any crunching mo- movements and the more I went to that gym the more I wanted to participate fully in the workouts and so I started like saying like is there a way I can learn how to do this movement are there other ways to do it and so through social media um, I came across um, Anthony Lowe the physio detective who's yeah. an Australian women's health physiotherapist yeah. um, and a few people I was communicating on social media had worked with him and another person um, Lisa Mary Ryan I, yeah. she had a significant diastasis and she was is a crossfitter and so she had videos of herself with this huge diastasis distended belly doing toda bars and so that caught my curiosity so I reached yeah. out to her and through her I reached out to Anthony and he um, and I was he was coming to Canada a few months afterwards so I signed up for a course that he was going to and he just asked me the movements I struggled with. He asked me what movements I struggled with and he asked me to show him. And so like I showed him and he would just suggest just a little things like, um, what other ways can you try it? Why don't you try it this way? What else can you do? Like, why don't you? And instead of being told, don't do this, it was the first time someone had suggested, like, if you can't do something one way, why don't you try it another way? Like, yeah. it seems like such a simple solution but it's never presented to you it's just an option never given to you and that's how I felt too after I took his TFA course the female athlete um it's it's mind-blowingly simple and it's my it just works right and so is that when you started to see your kind of true strength it is and then he said something else because I had also recorded myself to see if I was like doing it right, quote unquote, right. doing it, what my belly looked like. Is my belly distending too much? Is it caving too much? And that kept me back a lot of the time because I'd do an exercise and it felt like I felt great doing it. And then I'd look back and my belly like looked a way that I thought maybe it shouldn't. And I remember I was doing um oblique twist with him, or like Russian twist where I'm leaning back and I was so conscious of holding my abs in and pulling everything in. And he could see that in my face and he asked me to relax. My brain was like, I can't relax. Like you can't relax. You have to like pull in. They say like your core, engage your core, suck everything in as much as you can. Yeah. But sometimes, like almost having somebody that he he was comfortable, so he felt secure in his information. So instead of this, I'm gonna break. So I think that's always at the back of your mind. I'm gonna break. I just like relaxed and did it without holding everything in. And he was like, "Well, what happened?" nothing happened I didn't break I didn't explode my abs didn't rip apart like actually I discovered it felt better I did it a different way and it didn't feel as hard I didn't have yeah. to put in as much effort and I can com- accomplish the movement um and yet and kind of my belly did look different but 
that was the thing. There's a lot of focus on what your belly looks like um, regard outside of diastasis, postpartum, what your belly looks like, but a lot of focus on, is it, are you distending? Is it splitting? Is it this? Um, and that experience kind of taught me that what it looks like doesn't always, it's, it doesn't determine what you can do. And things look different sometimes and everybody looks bodies present in different ways and the experience that you're having within your body is going to be the biggest information that you can take away and like a body shouldn't look a particular way and I've been more confident in exercises because I record myself just to kind of see what I'm doing and understand what I'm doing but and but not to respond to the way my body looks unless the way that I'm doing it is presenting me like issues unless I'm having pain or discomfort then my the way that I look can be feedback, but if I'm not having pain and discomfort, then the way I look is just the way I look. Yeah, yeah, and that is, that's important because I think, you know, I see, I hear this all the time from new, newly postpartum people with diastasis and they're like, oh, you know, um, can I do jumping jacks? Can I do sit-ups? It's always a can I do this, kind of like I need permission to, almost because that's kind of what's been sold to them, right? It's been sold to them, you must fear this, um, big thing that's wrong with your body and yeah. without permission from someone else who's this you know expert um, don't try anything yourself right and that's the message that has been given for so long and I, I wouldn't say that's only with diastasis it was, it's with a lot of injuries but what we see in the diastasis world is because women are also you know postpartum there's so many emotions um, there's everything else that happens postpartum the lack of sleep the huge trans transitions whether it's your first or second child the relationships change and on top of that you have this massive body image um, or body change so I think that what I notice anyways is that like if it wasn't for postpartum if if the diastasis was occurring like on for example because men have it too uh, you know it's common in other people and you said yourself you've had an umbilical hernia from before and you know these are things that happen even pre-pregnancy but a lot of people are hearing about diastasis for the first time after they have a baby. And I wonder if that bounce back kind of culture, that bounce back messaging, um, you know, that diet industry, right? We make money off of it, not we personally, but people make money off of women's insecurities in their bodies. Um, did you ever feel like when you were at the gym lifting heavy, did you have people come up to you and say like, oh, you know, try it this way because this doesn't look right or you know did you have that kind of unnecessary feedback from strangers that we often get as women not often I mean I like to have like my big headphones on at the gym and play music like yeah you're like I don't want to talk to you (laughs) I don't pay a lot of attention to people so maybe they were trying to like (laughs) call me but I like yeah my best to zone out and when especially when I first started going I was pretty self-conscious about my body so I was trying not to um, look at anybody or look yeah pay attention to anyone else but like with the diocese I often wonder like now I question um it's kind of like did the what came first the chicken or the egg so was it that people were coming experiencing problematic movement and you were seeing this distension or was this distension the cause for the alarm in the first place and like there was right. a point made um Anthony Lowe is the one that said it he said that people don't go to a physiotherapist or they don't go to the doctor because they're feeling great and yeah. so all the people that have a diastasis and but they're feeling great with movement or um they don't have any social anxiety about it they're not going to go see someone with 
see someone about it. It's right. only the people, the percentage that are experiencing things, they're going to see people. And so it gets linked. But kind of also understanding the more I tried to change my aesthetic, the more I kind of questioned what where this girl aesthetic was coming from and like you mentioned like research fitness research most fitness research is done on like college age men right but research in general uh, white men is yeah. done on white people and yeah. research that is done on black people is to use it in, has historically being to use the information to treat white people and so mm. historically like white black bodies have been othered and white bodies have been normal normalized and so i went through like experiencing the othering of my body because i was i grew i was born in nigeria but i moved to england when i was five and mm-hmm. i don't remember any awareness of the hernia in nigeria or thinking of it but when i moved to england i was bullied because of it and so that's my where my awareness grew and that's where my insecurities around it began and where i started viewing it as problematic um but outside of that i hadn't and I had surgery to fix it. And the surgeon, it was a white surgeon who performed the surgery and I didn't really have any information about it. But I know my mother has told me that my grandmother was upset about it because she had said that the hernia was normal and that she knew lots of children that had it and that it would resolve itself within before I was adult, an adult. And now as an adult that I've looked at the research, the research says that most childhood hernias, umbilical hernias that children are born with will reduce in size and resolve within their first 10 years of life. But I also learned that up to around 30% of children of African descent are born with these umbilical hernias. And so as a black child in an English, in a white school in England, going to a white doctor, he, I now know he didn't really have understanding about my body or awareness about my body. And it wasn't that my body was abnormal. It's just he didn't understand it. My body was abnormal to him. And right. my body was abnormal to the children that I was going to school with. And so it's just that we're it's yeah, lack of representation, but just kind of um the history of um the history like our recent history, history of chattel slavery which uh which um was supported because of the othering of black people and yeah. making and suggesting that black people were less than human, but this kind of legacy runs through. And this kind of obsession with a flat, a certain aesthetic comes from separating one racial group from another racial group. And when I looked back more into the history, because um, people will comment like, they're like, oh, we have Venus de Milo and, um, before like the 1700s, like voluptuous figures were celebrated and they comment about that. But a lot of the changing in figures was to do with the slave trade that began in the 1600s. And um, a lot of what the physiques that were associated with the slave women and a lot of slave women were known as breeders. Um, Their job was to produce more slaves because if a black woman had a child, she was, the child was automatically a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and slave women were known as wet nurses. And so if you put them in this, they often had like up to 14 children wow. um, who would be enslaved. So if you're thinking of the enslaved woman whose kind of value is in reproducing and she's always in this newly postpartum stage or breastfeeding other children, um, she's carrying more weight and her body yeah. looks more physic- physically different. Yeah. And then we look at like BMI, which was something that was based on Scottish and French populations. And it was created to look at populations, not individuals. But the reasoning behind it is because they wanted to identify what a normal weight range was for a population, normal being 
within a white population and that information was used to other black and indigenous populations who they sizes at this time so had an average a larger body size on average and so there's a lot of history linking this larger body size um was more about oppression was more about othering black women othering brown and indigenous women versus anything to do with health and so part of my that's kind of what i'm i'm my um intent is to separate like physical appearance from health because that's the my part of the language i talk about decolonizing fitness because colonization has given us an aesthetic of beauty which is based on white supremacy and um in order to be able to embrace myself i have to reject the whole everything every message that white supremacy has because it wasn't a message that was built for me it was a message that was built to oppress me but even with that oppression affects everyone like when one group is oppressed we all everyone suffers the result of that oppression um and i talked to a friend about it before and it was something simple like she had mentioned um that she grew up catholic and she saw that a lot of she's white she grew up catholic she saw a lot of her value was in having children and she felt like her value as a woman was in her ability to have a family and raise a family and she'd never thought about like kind of where that came from and i talked about with the history with chattel slavery is once slavery was illegal um the concern was that black people would reproduce and overpopulate white people and black people would take over and you even have sentiments like comments you hear now that oh there'll be no white people in the future because of all like the black people all the mixed race kids like i'll, I'll hear it even today in 2021 um, I've so, heard that too, and it bugs me so much. I'm like, that's first of all, anyways, that's what you're worried about. And like, if you were worried about that, like, why would colonizers go and into, you know, black and brown nations and try to take over? You know, it's like, if you're worried about that, you should have stayed in your own place. Like, why did you go? Um, and now everyone's worried about this. I know I saw it on like, I think it was Time, right? Like it was a big magazine like a few couple years ago and it was like the end of whiteness or something like, of course, just like clickbait where you're like, ooh, I want to read this. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can just see that like a lot of the, um, I think a lot of white people are, don't realize that they are raised in a systemic kind of white supremacist, um, system because yeah. they're privil- they're often privileged and they're uh, benefiting from that. But like you said, your friend, you know, she's not really benefiting when she feels this pressure to like have a bunch of kids because that's who she was. That's how she was raised. That that's kind yeah. of her role. So I was saying, like that was the flip side of the oppression that she was getting. Um, because there's a whole history, even currently, like now it happens, like black and indigenous people being sterilized, forcibly sterilized in Mississippi. It's so common, um, women going in for routine um, checks or women after they deliver by C-section being sterilized with or without wow. information. Sometimes they're not told. Sometimes women are told that they wouldn't, won't be given welfare if they're not sterilized after their child and it's so common in the states within in, especially in the south it's called known as a mississippi appendectomy that's how wow. common sterilizations are but also um planned parenthood came out as a result of um, margaret sanger who is the like founder of it it came out of the organization she created it was her role was to um improve the population by 
preventing black and indigenous and poor people from reproducing. And so Planned Parenthood was designed to give um, to sterilize black people. And so I said, I was explaining to her, there's this flip side of the coin where black, brown, indigenous people are being forcibly sterilized and white people are being given this message that their value white women is in reproducing because of this white supremacist idea that white people need to populate the world and black and brown indigenous people are lesser and they need to disappear. And mm. so that was just a small ex example of the flip side of oppression. So it's like white supremacy oppresses white people and it oppresses black people, it oppresses brown, it oppresses all people. It just yeah. oppresses us at different levels. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like we're all affected by it. Um, and I also think about like, because my husband is white, you know, I think about how he, he was raised in Northern Ontario. And until he really moved to Toronto, like there was so much ignorance just because of the way where he was raised and the way he was raised, right? He didn't know about so many different things. And even to this day, we'll be having conversations and I'm like, wow, like, I didn't know you didn't know that, first of all, because to me, it's a given. It's like obvious, right? Because I... Um, and I think that when you're not white, you're also forced to be a little bit more ethnically um, diverse. Like you, you learn more about other cultures because you know that it's not, hey, it's not just you that matters, right? Versus yeah. when you're white and, you know, you're raised in a white environment. It's like, why do we really need to learn about these other cultures other than like, oh, yes, Indian people cel celebrate the Valley and this, yeah. you know, Chinese people celebrate the Chinese New Year. It's It's more like a let's just know that their holidays exist and that, you know, their geography in the world, but like rather than all of the contributions, um, in society, you know, all of the amazing discoveries and steps forwards, steps forward that are made every single day. Uh, and you know, a lot of what you share about, um, chattel slavery about white supremacy is stuff that I don't think most people, to be honest, know, because even me, you know, someone who's in a city that's very multicultural didn't really notice how my education was so based on um, Eurocentric standards. I remember, though, in history class in high school and like people, there are some people who didn't even know where India was. I'm like, India is a huge country. We have like billions of people, you know, Indians in the world. Like, how could you not even know where that is? But we learned so little about other parts of the world other than like World War One, World War Two and like that Euro you know, that colonization, right? Even the indigenous uh, populations and residential schools, we didn't learn about in high school. And I didn't know this until a few years ago. So we're all in many ways very um, like ignorant to the issues that have happened because it wasn't taught to us. And we, we take everything at school for face value. We think it's fact. And I love that you kind of point out on your page kind of the importance of questioning that and like questioning the source and why that message was given. I was just saying, like, we don't get that information. I was just trying to see who said the quote, because especially like with the like residential schools, um, because there's a quote that says history is written by the winners. And so like right. to like hide the dirty part of their history and they don't want to talk about like the horrors of in residential schools, although like literal bodies are being dug up today to like show what was done. But you know, the winners of that time in history weren't the ones writing the story. The story was being written and dictated by someone else. There's a Nigerian proverb, similarly, that says, don't let the lion tell the giraffe story. And white mm. supremacy is the lion, and it's been telling the story for a long time, and that's not the full story. 
Yeah. It's it's a very small side of the story. And uh, even if it was their truth, it's not the whole truth because you can't you can't ignore the other sides of the story. And I love that. I love that proverb because it's so true. And I think uh, many of us, you know, even even those who are white, who are, let's say, of, um, you know, Jewish or, you know, Italian or immigrant populations from, let's say, Eastern Europe, probably identify with a lot of that because I think there's many parts of the world that are, um, that have populations that were oppressed, right? But overall, when we look at the treatment of, um, you know, black and indigenous and people of color, you know, it it wasn't until I would say last year during the Black Lives Matter uh, movement on social media that I would see a lot of people's eyes were first open to it. Um, And how is that for you? Because you obviously knew all of this for a long time before that. But how did you feel when, you know, you saw that like, oh, now everyone else is learning about this for the first time? You know, it was like some people and not everyone else. I think the power of just kind of the changes over the last two years yeah. was conversations. And so I think like that's helped me, the other other people's conversations helped me feel confident about talking about my experience because that's part of the othering. When you only get one story and that story doesn't re- reflect your experience, you start to feel like your experience is wrong or that you're wrong for having that experience. But when in social media and just in just everywhere in general when you started like seeing other people tell your ex- your exact story and that was also the power of me being ex- spreading my where i was getting my information to reading books by african authors reading books by black authors like looking at the the music that they wrote is that they started telling my story and then I realized by hearing your story by from other people, you realize you're not alone. And I was not strange for experiences and there wasn't something wrong with me or something innately wrong with me. There was something wrong with the system. And there was something, the problem wasn't my blackness. The problem was white supremacy. And my whole life I've struggled with being black and I've struggled with even like saying that because it's like, how can you be ashamed of your race? How can you acknowledge that? It's like, I'm like, that's not empowering for other black people. Like how, mm-hmm. and I really had a lot of like self loathe I didn't like myself and I didn't like the fact that I didn't like myself mm-hmm. but kind of now having those conversations and seeing these seeing these experiences I've been able to identify like what I didn't like and that was the message that I've been given I was taught not to like myself and I was taught that the things that were that I had were like wrong and I was taught to be other than you even see that like people like to say some white people will say I don't see race there is no race and um I think they see that and they think, and the argument is that everyone, I treat everyone the same. Right. But what they don't understand, and that's where this idea of white privilege comes in, is because you have one experience, you have the privilege of that experience, you cannot understand somebody else having another experience. Because you don't experience this oppression, you have no understanding or relatability to somebody else experiencing like that level of oppression that's your privilege your privilege is that you don't understand but that's also in large part because you're like i don't hear other people saying these stories i don't hear it from my mom and my granddad or my friends don't talk about it but i'm like if your mom and your granddad are white and all your friends are right and they grew up in the same town they have the same experience of course they're going to have the same story and that should be your clue if you don't understand to seek more information and to find out and to find listen to this perspective that you haven't been seeing i love that to understand like 
people some people get so triggered by this term white privilege because white some white people hear it and i've had conversations even with friends a friend said um my parents worked for everything they had i grew up i've scraped for everything that i had i worked hard like i'm not privileged and i said to her like how i described it to her, i said like okay i said um if you walk into walmart and you look at the posters at walmart like what do you see um she was like you know just you know picture posters of people and i'm like do you like buy your makeup at the um pharmacy at the convenience store she's like yeah i can buy makeup there i'm like do you like get bad needs your skin color i can buy a banner like who was who started in the last movie like you watch just saying stuff like that and i told him like i order my makeup online because i can't walk into a drugstore and find a color in my tone yeah. i go into walmart and i've done this exercise intentionally just to see i'm like i went into walmart and there were seven posters not one of them had a black person on like i'm not represented i watch movies um shows like friends set in new york city and in the whole run of that series they had one black guest star instead in new york i watched wow. Sex City, is another show i had in the whole run of that show they had a black guest star two black characters in one episode in the six seasons of that show wow. so i was seeing her like privilege um there was i can't remember the author she wrote a book on white privilege and she said like white privilege like is being able to easily gather in a room with people of your own race it's learning the history of your country and having people of your race reflected in that history it's like indigenous history canada is turtle island north america's turtle island this is the land of indigenous people and the fact that you don't know indigenous history that's white privilege yeah. the fact that we can talk about john a. john mcdonald and we can talk about all these canadian figures and we remember like that's and they're white figures like that is not the history of this land you know i have an example my two sister-in-laws were talking about, you know, they go tree planting in the summer, right? And they were like, yeah, we showed up. And, you know, when you go tree planting, I don't know how to do that. I That's not my thing. Uh, I would last like two minutes and I'd be like, all right, I'm out. But yeah, they spent the summers doing that. And I guess they'd showed up to a motel or hotel up north, you know, looking super disheveled, like, you know, dirty, kind of smelly from like being out in the bush tree planting. And they were like, oh, this person was treating us so poorly. Like they were like just judging that we were going to be like, um, you know, just because we smelled or we looked looked a certain way they were just like treating us so bad and I like we were so mad and I was like well that's how people are treated despite looking good because of their skin color that you know they're treated like that all of the time I'm like this is your like tiny little taste in what like the rest of the world experiences when they're not white because you know and I even we talked to my husband and I'm like listen for my brother to go outside with holes in his shirt or like looking disheveled he'll be judged as like a scary brown man Versus if a white man goes out in the same clothes, it's just like, yeah, you know, whatever. He's a hipster or whatever, right? There's no judgment in that same negative way. Um, or if there is, you have to be so much more scary looking, quote unquote, in order to be judged. And I think that it exists in every single, you know, every single day that I go out to work, you know, this is before a pandemic, there would be experiences which would remind me that I am Indian. And I think people who are white don't know this. They don't know that there's this extra effort that happens when you're not white. And it's not because I don't love being brown. It's because I don't love the privilege that I don't get for being brown. You know, there was a point where I felt guilty for like not loving being Indian. But it wasn't that I don't love being Indian because I, trust me, I love the culture, the food, the people, the languages. It's that I don't like that it's not valued here, um, you know, and 
ultimately, I think both from, you know, following you and just learning more about this, I realized that it's not about what other people value. I have to also value it myself and show that and demonstrate that um, so that other people see the value in it too. And, you know, these aren't conversations I've had with many of my white friends. And I think if you're a white person listening to this and you have friends who are not white and they haven't talked to you about this, it means they're not comfortable talking to you about this. And it means that maybe you have some work to do yourself to start having these conversations. Because I think that when people are very um, ignorant to their own privilege, it's very difficult for people of color to have these open conversations. And I think that it also reflects that level of trust in that relationship when you can't be uh, seen as your full self. All right, friends, I'm going to wrap up this half of this epic conversation and we're going to come back in part B. I split it up so that it's easier for you, uh, for the listener to uh, absorb this because there's so much amazing information. We talked about body image. We talked about white privilege. We talked about oppression and slavery and racism and how all of these impact body image and um, aesthetic and Um, social and physical body norms and I think this conversation is so so important for so many reasons and I'm so excited to bring back part two with the Nemesis Graham thank you so much Nemesis for spending your time with us today and for you listeners for tuning into this very very important conversation Um, stay tuned for part b Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links and we'll chat again real soon.